Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Yes, we're real threats in the muck-tuck eating contest. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Kazus, also known as Brian. Today's episode is, what are you fighting for? Part two of our exploration of 1998's Metal Gear Solid, where we will look at the main and supporting characters of the game. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. A quick programming tease, we will be revising our format a bit uh, with handling synopses for future games. Uh, We'll get more into that when we reach Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty, Uh, but we realized the previous episode, uh, giving all of the Shadow Moses incident up front uh, might be a lot. So we're going to break that up uh, over the course of... And that's just for Shadow Moses, which is like the simplest, probably most straightforward game yeah the games are going to get much bigger both in terms of the narrative they tell um they'll definitely take place over a kind of a longer time span as well um and may even be disparate events within those games so um it's going to be a lot easier if we break it up but anyways we'll get to that when we get to it uh for today's character study i say we start off with analysis of the legendary soldier himself solid snake uh solid snake um Famously voiced by David Hayter, um, escape from New York notwithstanding, the name Snake does indeed come from the animal. Uh, quoting Hideo Kojima from Twitter in 2014, uh, Snake was the most appropriate symbol of living thing that hides his presence and sneaks without any noise. And the solid aspect of that comes from, again, Kojima, was to give the opposite impression of a soft image because we don't want Solid Snake to be perceived as a soft boy here. <laughs> He is not soft. He's a he's a hard man. Ah, such a hard man. Um, and uh, Kojima would play on that word solid again because um, he would mention that as because uh, we mentioned that it was called Metal Gear 1 and 2 on the MSX and then 1998's game Metal Gear Solid. Uh, he played on the word solid to mean bringing the series into three dimensions, uh, you know, from the previous 2D iterations. Uh, our protagonist's real-life name is Dave or David. Uh, there is some biblical parallels here with Snake being David and Metal Gear being Goliath. Um, and additionally, it's a 2001 A Space Odyssey reference uh, with his best friend being Hal, the computer guy. Uh, you know, Dave and Hal, you know, you, you get it. And then, uh, like many late 90s Japanese antiheroes, uh, Solid Snake was roughly based on Lupin the Third, uh, which I only wanted to mention because I've only seen Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro, because it's a Heio Miyazaki film. That's all you need. And it's, it's a fantastic film. It's on Netflix. It's a great adventure spy movie. Um, I, I couldn't recommend it enough. The most famous 90s Japanese antihero who's based on Lupin is, of course, Spike Spiegel. But that's... Uh, man, I'm just imagining if Solid Snake was voiced by Steve Bloom now. Oh, God. It'd still work. I think it would still work. Oh, for sure. Um, I, I, I've been opening myself up to other voice interpretations of Solid Snake, given that we're going to have an Oscar Isaac one theoretically coming soon. So um, I guess Kiefer Sutherland was kind of our gateway into... Uh, other voices for Snake there, but I can totally see Steve Bloom pulling that off. 
Uh, Solid Snake uh, physically was originally conceived in like general military fatigues or a special forces outfit, but now he's most popularly known with his blue sneaking suit, uh, his bandana waving in the air, and that all kind of came to be with this uh, 1998 game Metal Gear Solid. Uh, While we gave a quick summary of his early career in the previous episode, I just want to hit, you know, some high level points to remind the audience. Uh, Solid Snake was born in 1972 with his twin brother Eli, also known as Liquid. They were part of the Les Enfants Terribles uh, project, which was the hopes of cloning uh, Big Boss in order to create the perfect soldier. Um, His military history prior to the events of MGS-1 include uh, being part of the Green Berets, and he would serve in Iraq during the Gulf War, not unlike his brother Liquid again. And then he would eventually join Foxhound, um, and he would train and become extremely proficient soldier under the tutelage of Big Boss and uh, one Kazuhiro Master Miller, who we mentioned in our opening. Um, then the events of Metal Gear 1 and 2 happen, where he goes on to fight Big Boss and beat him twice, quote-unquote. Um, he would learn that Big Boss was his father, and then uh, following all those revelations, uh, he kind of goes into retirement following the events of Metal Gear 2, which again took place in 1999, uh, and then he retired uh, to Alaska, and he kind of mulled over everything that happened to him. He became a musher. I'm a musher. Yeah, um, he is a champion horse racer um, and not the only accomplished athlete in, among the characters we're going to cover today. Um, we got another one who's great at the muktuk eating contest. And what else was Vulcan good at? Some kind of throwing contest? Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember what he calls it, but yeah, but, which makes sense. Yeah, so Solid Snake coming into the events of Metal Gear Solid was uh, kind of a, a broken person, kind of one who's kind of become... Uh, disinterest, not disinterested, but like disillusioned by everything that happened over the Outer Heaven Uprising and the Zanzibar Land Insurrection. He had to kill his father, um, his best friend, Gray Fox, and all of that kind of took a toll on him. Um, his commanding officers, you know, kind of misled him at various points. So uh, he's just like, I'm sick of this shit. I'm out of the game. And then, you know, he retires to Alaska for the next, you know, five to six years before the Shadow Moses incident occurs. Uh, Snake the person, um, as you know, many people are familiar with, is a battle-hardened veteran. Um, he's considered very calm under pressure, which will even make people think that he might be cold or indifferent. But I think, you know, especially as the series grows, um, there is a heart of gold there, and there's a lot of empathy that Snake has hidden under his rougher facade, so to speak. Yeah, he's uh, he's not he's a very empathetic person. He he's the classic sort of. Uh, masculine empathetic figure where he cannot show his empathy but it still exists that's very much like the uh well that's not really from the 80s action hero that's more of a 90s thing that's how like batman started becoming like that instead of being the glowering fascist that he was in the 80s he instead became sort of like he's nice but he doesn't show it you just have to get to know him kind of Batman the Animated Series, it, I think, balanced that perfectly. Surprisingly, uh, that show did the best at something. Yeah. But yeah, that's sort of like where he gets into of like, the only, I have to think that Kojima just didn't want people to think he was gay <laughs> at that point. Like, he's nice, but he can't talk about it. 
And it's like, that's, that's where that comes from. I think you hit on something there. Um, not necessarily the gay part, but I think in the late nineties, well, cause he is gay. Uh, he is very gay. Um, it, the earnestness of the hero was kind of something that was kind of on the outs. Um, everything was meant to be a little edgier or subverting or hopefully subverting, but I think, you know, Various people failed at that. Um, so you see a, a generally kind of a more masculine and quote unquote extreme uh, kind of veneer on a lot of late 90s action heroes, um, as opposed to the 80s action heroes, which um, I know Snake Plissken is one that jumps to mind. But the first person I think of in 80s action hero is Indiana Jones. Um, and he's like, you know, he's definitely more of that character, but you know, he can still be very sensitive on the outside, even though, because he has that professor side and the academic side. Um, There's definitely an earnestness to, you know, those uh, Indiana Jones that say Solid Snake. You have to just dig deeper to find the earnest part of him. Well, I was thinking specifically that like the the 80 action heroes of the movies that Kojima was explicitly referencing with this game don't ha- like have no just don't have emotions like they they don't have time to have emotions like Rambo never has time to well I guess he does re- initially but after the first one never has time to have emotions he's too busy doing action and like most of Arnold's characters have the emotion of they have anger or surprise but they aren't like there's you know what I mean they're not like they're, they're not they're not thinking feeling people who have go on these long-winded philosophical debates about love blooming on battlefields or anything like that. They just have, they, they don't have time to bleed. They have, they have to get back in the fight. Yeah. And I think that sort of changes in the nineties where like, you're allowed to have more emotion, but it has to be like suppressed emotion. It's just the, the Batman style of like, I can't, if I cry, people won't do, I, I can't, Batman does not cry. Yes. Like, that kind of shit. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, that's also goes into just kind of the story of the game where uh, Solid Snake in the first act and a half or so is very much just that outer gruff exterior. And then in the back half of the game, uh, you get far more, you you dive deeper into him and you figure out, oh, he's not just a pastiche of uh, all these various film and uh, anime influences, but there's a very unique, empathetic character that's underneath all that gruff. And, you know, this is also part of that exterior and that shield that he has up is a result of the events that happened to him in the previous games, um, which have led him to, like, you know, a sense of PTSD, alcoholism. So Solid Snake uh, coming into the events of Shadow Moses is, um, you know, not necessarily the best version of himself, or he wouldn't say he's at his, like, peak, per se. Yeah, his hair his hair's grown out. Yeah. That's in the briefing. They have him, They have him cut his hair. Because he looks, it looks all haggard. He looks like my dad. <laughs> and I think, uh, which we were kind of getting to with all this, is the fact that in the back half of Metal Gear Solid is when a Solid Snake actually kind of self-actualizes. And we talked about this in our first episode in this podcast series, where kind of the events from, say, Psycho Mantis or the Hindi through the Sniper Wolf battle um, really feels like a sense of who Solid Snake is is and is going to be for the series really emerges, Um, especially after that sniper wolf fight, which we'll get to a little bit later. You kind of feel like he's renewed um, as he's walking off and he says, I have a job to do. I'm going to do it. Um, There's a sense of purpose there that maybe isn't there when he first lands on Shadow Moses Island. For sure. Um, So that's kind of who Solid Snake is as a person. Um, Some of the influences that kind of, you know, influence the conception of and the story of Solid Snake we want to get into. Uh, the most obvious ones are probably James Bond and Snake Plissken. Uh, Snake Plissken, if you're unaware, is the protagonist of the Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. movies uh, made by John Carpenter, who is absolutely based. I love John Carpenter. 
But I think a combination of those two characters is where a lot of the story tropes that Solid Snake both falls into, challenges, um, and expands upon kind of come from those two characters initially. uh, There's a little bit of Michael Bean or Kyle Reese thrown in from The Terminator, um, a little bit of Mel Gibson just kind of abstract Mel Gibson, probably Mad Max is probably um, the best physical uh, match to Solid Snake. Uh, This was kind of, because you very specifically talked about, and I agree with that, this is not meant to be lethal weapon. Um, It is not that kind of approach to violence and, um, you know, characterization that say, I forget if Gibson is Riggs or Murtaugh, but... Riggs. Yeah, he's Riggs. So um, it's not necessarily that character. Um, I also did want to throw in that there's a Captain America influence here, just in the fact that the greatest American soldier, a genetically created soldier, um, there's definitely themes that can be played on with both of them. And when I say influences, I'm not saying Kojima was like, oh, I'm going to put some Captain America into Solid Snake. It's just that you can very you can see very similar themes, uh, the merging of military and science uh, surround both of these characters. They're also treated similarly as like, You'd almost assume that Solid Snake had been around for 30 years, the way people talk about him in the game. Absolutely legendary soldier, same way Cap is. Yeah, and the way that people are when they meet Captain America or uh, Solid Snake, their first reaction is almost always to be in awe of them. Like, that's the first thing. Wow, the legendary Solid Snake is literally words that come out of several characters throughout the course of the series. Um, and I do want to point out that David Hayter has previously voiced Captain America, too. So there is a, a little bit of simpatico there. Um, but I think the meat of this conversation, or at least the Solid Snake conversation, is uh, where Solid Snake takes us um, in, ter- uh, in terms of themes of this game, of this game series. Um, and I think first is the fact that Solid Snake is a soldier um, and there are lots of ways that the soldier is portrayed as like a pitiable figure or as someone who, yes, they are complicit in the war crimes they do. And I'm not I'm not saying that Solid Snake is supposed to be viewed as a figure without fault or that he was always at, you know, doing things at the hands of other people. But it definitely views the soldier as someone who is to be manipulated and to be used and then discarded. Um, I think that's a very strong theme that goes through all these Metal Gear Solid games. Yeah, very much so. Uh, I mean... Th- Especially, I mean, they are, every soldier in the series is treated as a tool for the government or someone else. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, like, like, yeah, it's 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 interesting because I know it's timeline. I know it, it's, for, I always wonder if, if he, if Kojima, Kojima maybe wanted to make them, to drive that point home further, I wonder if maybe he wanted to have the snakes be in Vietnam to serve Vietnam instead of the Gulf War. Because the Gulf War, I'm sure there, I mean, obviously there were, every war, especially every war that the American military has participated in, has had its share of war crimes. But they aren't as, they're not as, uh, no one thinks about them. It's not, that's something you don't always associate with, especially the first, like the one we're in now, obviously. But the first Gulf War was short enough that I think people don't really consider that stuff, although I'm sure it happened. I do wonder if, if, if that's if that's the tack he was going for, of like, the, this guy has seen horrors of war. That's usually Vietnam. That's usually, you know, that's kind of the trope. Yeah, that's where, like, the Punisher comes from. That's where Rambo, um, all those characters, kind of the Vietnam War is definitely, like, the radicalizing war, so to speak. Um, and I think, you know, the idea that the Iraq War is different, I think, 
in the first Iraq war, that is, with a Desert Storm, Desert Shield, uh, that was where, you know, America and the American media and the American government kind of learned their lessons about Vietnam. Yes. Um, and like how to control that narrative. And because the modes of media did not change much between Vietnam and the first Iraq war, like it was still TV, still print newspaper, um, they were able to you know, make that into a much more palatable war to the American masses. Whereas, uh, you know, they may have tried to do that with the ongoing Iraq and Afghani wars that are happening right now. Well, they they definitely did. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they don't have full control of the media because of the change with the internet, with Twitter. Um, you know, so many more tools are available to challenge the narratives of the traditional methods. I mean, we both, I, I remember for sure, and I know you're, you're old, you, you definitely remember when they invaded in, in 2003 the first two weeks of the entire two weeks of news coverage that was like cnn and msnbc and like all the quote-unquote liberal networks basically saluting like video of missiles being launched in the baghdad i mean like this is the price of freedom is high and just giving like absolute blood and, and stone like rants about the glory of the american military like for hours they would do this. And this is this was CNN doing this. This was like Wolf Blitzer being like, this is a beautiful image. It's like a house being blown up in Baghdad. It was weird. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, they still they still do it now. They still do it now, but it was like full court press. They were they went hard with that. And I think for that specific reason they wanted to control that narrative. And it worked I think it worked for probably a couple of years, I would say, before people started before the average before you started seeing more and more stuff. Although this is this is way off tan off, but has that war? I I don't think in the popular opinion that, that war is unpopular. Like it's just sort of accepted as a thing that it, it has to happen forever. Yeah, and I think that's um, you know I think Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker gets to this theme about eventually with nuclear bombs, you know, the great wars between nation states are just going to fade away, and it's going to be these proxy wars that kind of go on forever. Um, that's a key thesis to Forever War. And, you know, the military or the privatization of military military forces. Yeah. Um, Because now you can kind of keep these. And now I think Iraq is just background noise. It's background radiation. It's the thing that most people assume to just be a thing that had to be done and it will continue to be done and nothing's going to change. And by the way, George Bush is really cute painting pictures and hugging Michelle Obama. Uh, You know, whatever scars and like, badness that people have of the Iraq war, it seems to be completely divorced from the actors or systems that made that possible. So it's hard to, um, you know, really gauge. Cause I know we run in circles where we will never forget the horrors of what happened after nine 11. Uh, but you know, for the most part, the rest of it's just been baked into American DNA and maybe trying to circle this back towards metal gear. Uh, that's how the soldiers are treated. Um, you know, they serve their purpose, but they're serving the purpose. So what CNN shows you or what the president talks about at the State of the Union, that that's all big and good. But what's actually happening to the soldier, how they're used, you know, within the missions themselves, um, you know, it's not it's not enviable. Uh, and it's, you know, how much agency the soldier really has. And I think that's a key part of Solid Snake is while you're going in and being the quote unquote badass, and you are a badass in this game, you, you know, you take down a hind D with a rocket launcher, you fight six amazingly talented special forces operatives. Beat up a tank. Yeah. I mean, the, the 
actual victories you have in this are substantial. You take down Metal Gear with an assist from Gray Fox, but um, you find out that in the end, your mission and your mission success was really that you've been injected with you know, Fox die, a biological agent. And the hope is that you just go in and you basically spread this disease to everyone and it kills them, or at least the people who really need to die, which are the hostages, oddly enough, <laughs> um, as well as Liquid Snake. Um, but, and, you know, I think that's really it because, uh, you know, some of the other members of Foxhound, uh, as we'll discuss, are kind of just there as part of the unit and rebellion against the system and maybe less so for Liquid specific rebellion. Um, and I also think someone like Ocelot might be someone who wasn't specifically targeted for, uh, this, uh, Fox die strain. And I, I think we've kind of gone over, uh, Solid Snake as a soldier and kind of, um, how he's been used, but also, uh, it's not just that he's used to do these missions, but then he'll be held up by an American government. Um, like look at our, our hero, Solid Snake, while, you know, quietly marginalizing him out of the public eye. Um, and this is something that happens to Big Boss before him, where he they're ready to pin medals on him and say he's the greatest American soldier. But the minute that, um, you know, it's no longer convenient to hold him up as a hero, uh, you know, he just kind of discarded. It's the man versus the myth. It's uh, it's a very liberty balance scenario. Um, we can even draw analogies to someone like Patrick Tillman, who I feel like we've kind of hear about a little less now that we know the real story about the circumstances surrounding his death. Um, it's not, you know, this great, you know, I mean, he's, he still can be perceived as a great figure, but not the narrative that the American media initially wanted to give us on him. Yeah, he's pretty much only used now by conservatives. Like, I, you don't hear much about him from the more mainstream, well, I guess, I, I say mainstream as though the American mainstream is not deeply conservative, but you know what I'm talking about. Like the, yeah, like CNN, centrist media. Yeah, he, he's used mostly now by uh, every six months by when a, when a conservative wants to win an argument on Twitter, they'll they'll mention him. And then they, they were like, it doesn't matter how he died. It doesn't matter what he actually believed in, which, again, that's a marginalization in its own way. Right. Right. Because um, he very specifically believed in things and he very specifically, you know, died in a certain way. And both of those things are very tangible. Um, but uh, and we've mentioned that all these things that apply to Solid Snake will apply to Big Boss or they applied to Big Boss before him in the chronology will apply to Big Boss after him in terms of the game series. Um, but. Uh, there's very much a sense of the sins of the father um, theme that runs through all of these games and will apply equally as much to the next character we discuss um, because, uh, you know, Big Boss and Solid Snake fought the times or fought, you know, the powers that be um, in very similar ways. And there's a reason they're basically the same character for, um, at least in conception and design. I would, I would, say, that, I would say that Big Boss is maybe... As, because he's burdened with uh, having already existed before yeah. his first game. He is given more, at least by the end of three, he's given more, I think he's m more, has more agency than Solid Snake does. Yes. Uh, even into two, because two is, he's still being manipulated by the Patriots and, and like kind of being used. Like, I guess he has more, he has a more cogent and like achievable goal, whereas Snake just sort of, is fighting against the Metal Gears. That's that's it. That's like his, which is great. It's a you know, it's perfect. It's but, a purpose yeah. he he needed, but yeah, he, I think he's given less of a. His his conflicts are more nebulous by the time by, in his time, and and where Big Bosses I think has a more specific goal, 
in mind. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's both accurate and again, I have I hate to keep taking these things and saying this is why Metal Gear is good, but I think you can talk about how during the 60s, during the Cold Wars, it felt like we knew who the enemy was. Mm -hmm. um, and then especially after the end of the Soviet Union, um, even into this war on terror that we're forever waging now, uh, the concept of who the enemy is and is the enemy visible, is does the enemy even exist? Um, you know, that's far more per pertinent to our modern times. And I think, you know, something like Metal Gear Solid 2, especially with the Patriot system, um, really gets at that, that, who the enemy is and the context for control um, changed because there was no clear-cut enemy. Hell, this is a theme in Captain America movies. Like, The Winter Soldier is literally about how, you know, Cap was having trouble figuring out what exactly is the enemy threat in 2014 uh, versus back in the 50s and 60s or 40s uh, when it felt like for right or wrong, the enemies were the Nazis. Well, that was definitely right. But then when you get into the anti-communism and just opposing people on political ideology, that's where... Well, it's important that Cap was not around for that. Yes, exactly. So e even that amount of of introspection and like doubt never... He, he never experienced that, so... Um, so it's it's a very complicated uh, scenario, and we're going to get into, um, we spoke of the sins of the father, but the actual genetic themes we'll talk about a little more uh, next time, um, especially as we dive into um, the themes of the game overall. Uh, but I did want to, before we pivot on to some of these other characters, we should talk about the legacy of Solid Snake outside of Metal Gear Solid, um, because I think he is one of the most aped uh, video game protagonists after this point. You, that was on purpose. <laughs> shut up <laughs> I, it was but shut up <laughs> but you you'd probably even be able to speak to this more than i can but the number of video game protagonists even from like the nathan drake type who isn't necessarily solid snake i i would say i would say there's something there though yeah, yeah. um there's a look to them it's definitely the brunette grizzled um you know savvy military uh you, you, you kind of know what i'm saying i'm kind of stumbling on my words here yeah the marketing guy like I mean, it it it's it's went it, that went so far that it even infected Bioshock, and this is somebody who thinks that Booker DeWitt is a good character in Bioshock Infinite, but like that cover turned people off because it was like this is a Bioshock game. It's just like some guy with some guy with stubble holding a gun. Like I don't want that's not what I want in Bioshock, and like yeah, that that went everywhere from really the late nineties to I mean, it still happens now, but you get like infamous and all these games there's 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 dozens of them where the guy on the cover is supposed to be the selling point it's just like some guy far cry did that yeah it it's very much and i th i feel like that snake more than any other character is responsible for that because the all the other you know if it's a if it's a blonde guy with sunglasses that's duke nukem but that didn't really catch on for some reason it couldn't be because duke nukem is a bad character no he's good we all like him uh, <laughs> And then, like, and like the the Doom guy, Master Chief thing. That's a different strain entirely. Like, that's not, you know, you know, those guys don't. Well, Doom guy does, but nobody cares. Yeah, I'm thinking about grounded characters in our real world because even I'm trying to think of protagonists in video games back then, and I'm thinking of like Link and Mega Man, <laughs> like you know, things that are obviously Samus, very more, yeah, things like that are more conceptual, sci-fi, uh, fantastical. Um, we didn't really have too many grounded in the real world, or if it was, it was like pre-existing really bad Batman and James Bond games. Uh, well, I mean, GoldenEye was fine, but you know what I mean. It's not 
it, because of the limitations of video games, probably at this point, it was a lot easier mm-hmm. to render fantastical worlds, um, not necessarily bound by our physics and laws and things like that. Yeah, and then like Final Fantasy doesn't count because Final Fantasy does not have uh, every game has different protagonists. Yeah, six to its credit, this is a complete tangent. Six does not get credit for its two main protagonists, both being very different women. And then there's a third major female character who's also very different from those two. This game came out in 1995. It's not talked about. It's very strange that no one thinks about that. Final Fantasy in general has like mostly very good female protagonists. Yeah. Then then you get to Lightning. Tying this in the middle, then you get to Lightning, who is sort of a snake snake XB. She's supposed to be Cloud, but she is also gruff, sort of reserved, like just snake-ish. That sort of, that sort of line of, of heroes. But yeah, what's what's interesting is that nobody else really Nathan Drake notwithstanding, and he's a very different differently portrayed just because Nolan North is Nolan North. That's what he sounds like. Right. Yeah, nobody else ever really captured that exact no I mean none of these other characters are anywhere near as popular. I, we mentioned all of them. Like what is even the guy from Infamous's infamous's name? Like who knows? Who cares? Um, I Booker DeWitt. Booker DeWitt. Booker DeWitt wasn't that popular, right? And um, I th- great, a very, very, very good performance. Troy Baker is a fantastic actor, but yeah, as we'll get to later on. Yeah, it's it's Hater is is the is the key here. Like he's, it's really you would not expect it from a guy who's mostly a screenwriter that his range in these games, he's just very good. Like it, considering Snake's mostly kind of reserved and and un, definitely stoic, Hater's able to get to even in in, in this game. I, I would say, almost honestly, especially in this game, yeah, to be completely honest, he gets to very surprising depths and very—he's very sensitive. Like he becomes a very sensitive character near the end of the game, where he's just—it's it's incredible to think of where because the game starts with him, like I said last time, <laughs> asking questions every two lines of dialogue and just sort of, kind of seeming like a doofus almost. Yeah, but it it works. It works because it, it you find out later that he really didn't know. Like he really had no idea what was going on and that was being purposely withheld withheld from him. Yeah, and I think some of that is to the information's being withheld from the player as much as it's being withheld from Solid Snake for the narrative machinations to work. Yes. And I do think like when we get to talking about Sniper Wolf and stuff, the way Solid Snake comports himself with Sniper Wolf's death, like I rewatched that YouTube like several times this week in preparation for this episode. And man, it is well-written, well-acted. Um, it, it gets me. Uh, it might be one of the first video game moments that really hit me on an emotional level. Um, granted, I had seen Aerith die and some other pretty, you know, pretty hard stuff, but this is like something with all the Metal Gear trappings and cinematics and how immersive the story was going into that moment. Uh, it, it hits hard. Um, and that's j- just more to the testament of David Hayter. Um, you know, Solid Snake is a character that, you know, a lot of video games want to have, uh, like someone like him, like you mentioned, and it's hard to pull off because it's not just all the aesthetics, but there's a lot of performance and depth to the character as well. Um, even Kojima kind of denies us ever having a true Solid Snake experience like this ever again. Um, every other version of this is some twist or something to kind of take away like that essence of solid snake that we get throughout metal gear solid in 1998 or in, in, in one example to explicitly mock you for wanting that. Yes. <laughs> Which is <laughs> a healthy contempt for the audience is always key to uh, Kojima's products, but 
Um, I, I think we can uh, kind of move on uh, to, you know, Snake's partner in crime, so to speak. Uh, we're going to talk about Hal Emmerich, a.k.a. Otacon, uh, voiced by Christopher Randolph. And the name, like we mentioned, comes from 2001 A Space Odyssey again. Uh, Dave and Hal, Hal and Dave, we love them both. Uh, and then uh, actually the last name Emmerich comes from Kojima's love for Roland Emmerich, who was yes. big over the 80s, ki- 80s type of action films uh, that Kojima really loves to put in his games. Uh, we will skip over, let's say, the complicated details of the Emmerich family history. They're core parts of future games, but what we do know is that Hale's grandfather worked on the Manhattan Project, um, and that his father also worked in nuclear weapons of some sorts. And so here we have Hal uh, f- following unknowingly in their in his uh, father and grandfather's footsteps. Uh, he was he worked for uh, Arms Tech, uh, the same company that uh, Kenneth Baker, uh, one of the hostages, uh, is president of. And he was brought in to work on, I think, a mobile defense system, um, not anything related to Metal Gear in terms of a nuclear weapon, but it was all for like, you know, attacking anti-air missiles and things of that nature. He also developed his own technology while at Arms Tech, uh, most notably stealth camouflage, which will factor heavily into uh, this and future games, specifically with the Cyborg Ninja. Um, and then basically him and Snake become besties over the course of Metal Gear Solid. Um, in my opinion, um, I don't get into all that fandom shipping stuff, but to me, Dave and Hal is the OTP, uh, the one true pairing. Um, I think they work best as a couple, as a very, uh, you know, married couple relationship that they have. They're kind of always arguing, and I'm not trying to draw very heteronormative stereotypes here, but um, they definitely have that vibe of, uh, you know, kind of two people who love each other but are kind of always pulling on each other at the same time. As the as the uh, the history books will always say, they were just they were very close friends. Yes, yes. <laughs> very, very good friends, very close. <laughs> just like Achilles and Patroclus. They were very good friends. I don't think anything more of it. <laughs> oh, man. Now, I actually don't know. I don't know how much, like, there, there's a lot of, I mean, it's something we want to get into is how gay Metal Gear is. But I actually do think they're more, like, I, I agree they have the best chemistry, but I, I do think they're meant to be more heterosexual life partners. For sure. I I, I, I kid, I kid. <laughs> Um, because I, I mean, think, mainly because because Hal is every game has some he has a woman that also dies, but like Hal is a little bit of a Lothario or, or wants to I think secretly wants to be, which is a fun characterization for that specific character to have. But it makes sense because like he's tall and handsome, like he's a handsome looking guy. Yeah, uh, these aren't my words, but uh, Otacon fucks. It's true. Um, that's all there is to it. Uh, he he is very. Um, he has a very complicated but a very long and rich history of sorts with uh, women, uh, which we'll uncover over these games. But um, in this game specifically, we do see that him and Sniper Wolf, who we'll talk about a bit later, um, I think that's one of uh, Hal's unrequited relationships, more or less, or it's a little more asymmetrical than some of the other ones we will talk about. But, um, you know, his relationship to the women in his life is very core to how um, you know, Hal turns out because he's going to have the same burdensome, burdensome relationship with his father. Um, so kind of everyone else in his life, you know, kind of comes up a level in terms of their importance and what they mean to him. And Atacan also is as close there as there is to an analog to the player of a Metal Gear Solid game. Mm. Uh, that's Hal. Um, he's, you know, kind of nerdy. He's really into computers. He loves anime. Are you in a taco too? 
Uh, oh, that was kind of a terrible delivery. So don't you forget I said that. But um, you know, he's <laughs> very he's very much like he asked Nick, "Is th- this is just like one of my Japanese animes?" Like, I mean, that's his name is Otacon. Yeah, yeah. Um, he relates things to the pop culture he's familiar with, uh, which I think everyone who's seen what modern day fandom looks like um, can relate to, or not relate to, but they understand that um, you know phenomenon. Snake, snake, watching anime is like doing politics. Right. Okay, Otacon. <laughs> Whatever you say, man. What? <laughs> uh, but it's it's that it's that same idea, and I think. Uh, Kojima, through all his games, is always going to play with the concept of fandom, what fans expect, uh, why fans shouldn't want these things or should want, or I'm going to give you something you think you want and then make it kind of sour. You know, he's going to play with the concept of Metal Gear interacting with its fandom in a way, you know, not many games do. I think the Final Fantasy VII remake is maybe the best example of a non-Metal Gear solid game actively engaging with its fandom. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure how I feel about that. There's, there's some. I want to see what happens before I, I give that game credit for for doing these things. That's fine. There are some other. I guess Spec Ops: The Line kind of does that, but I am also not. A, I don't think that game deserves cre- the credit it, it has, despite it trying some interesting things. But I, I think that game sort of. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to really get in. Like it's almost. It's too good of a shooter. It's, it's supposed to be this anti-war shooter, and like it's, there's too much shooting in it, and it's, it's, it it has too much fun like having you shoot people to really work, but um, yeah, I don't think there's another game series that really does it that really consistently does this that I can think of. Like games are wish fulfillment like to a fault, and it, it's yeah, it's it's even in this game, it, you know, I mean, Liquid explicitly condemns the player for liking for enjoying all the killing and that that's crazy that that happened in 1988 right like i said you're gonna you're gonna want to punch me in the face brian for how many times i'm gonna say metal gear solid actively challenges the power fantasy of video games um and you know that's just one of the ways it does it is uh questioning why you want the stuff um, that it gives you. And though uh, Atacan is not a uh, enemy, um, we were going to highlight the arenas that you fight all the enemies in. Um, and I want to point out that you do meet Atacan in a computer lab, which is, you know, just very core to his characterization. He He's the man on the computer, uh, to borrow a phrase from Spider-Man, or a, just a standard trope in, you know, common day action movies. But uh, the themes of uh, Otacon, the ones that he kind of plays on, uh, same Sins of the Father stuff that we kind of talked about with Solid Snake. But I think Hal is very specifically tied to science and service of war. Um, how, you know, often we hear the t- uh, story about scientists who just wanted to build rockets or just wanted to do this, that, or another, and how they were brought into uh, serve uh, specifically the American military industry, you know, the, the American military, uh, so to speak, um, so much so that uh, we were bringing in Nazi scientists and stuff to uh, serve the American military. So um, both good and bad people are always funneled into science and service of war. I think this is a big critique of the STEM program that we have right now in America, uh, where it seems to be a low-key way to funnel uh, young women and diverse uh, people into the arms industry, for lack of a better term. And I think that's something that's really took off around the time that Metal Gear Solid was in production. Um, The revolution of military affairs, the RMA, is a very important concept to Metal Gear. Um, It goes back to what we were 
you're talking about with the change from Vietnam to the first Iraq war, um, controlling the media narrative, using technology to uh, minimize boots on the ground. Uh, we were seeing so much technology and military growth uh, right at this nexus of the 90s. Um, and a lot of that was related to digitization, the birth of the internet. Um, it changed the way, you know, war has changed, so to speak. Um, it really changed um, kind of the outlook on war from trench warfare and what World War II and Vietnam would be to the wars of the future. Um, but I think overall, the anti-war messaging that or the anti-war themes that are at the core of Otacon are always going to relate to the nukes and the nuclear bombs, um, because, again, that's a core part of Metal Gear. That's a core part of Kojima's like worldview is to be against the proliferation of nuclear bombs, to be against their usage. Yes. Um, and I think Otacon being, just like many scientists said they were in their relation to the Manhattan Project, they thought they were working on science, not like this world-destroying bomb. I want to say, too, that I think it's interesting that I think Otacon, more than any single character, is responsible for Snake self-actualizing because he's he kind of dismisses him when he meets him, like he's not impressed by him, and then Pretty much right after the Gray Fox fight, right when they're talking about Metal Gear and, and how sort of becomes determined to stop it at all costs and will and it's like I'm going to help you. And Snake is just very impressed by that. I think he's, you know, impressed that this for lack of a better term, this weird nerd is gonna help him fight Metal Gear. And I think that really marks on him. I think he's impressed by it. And then it's important that I think philanthropy the way it's portrayed, the, the organization they form after this, it, it's portrayed like it's more like Hal is sort of in charge of it. Like it's it's kind of his thing, and Snake is just doing the wet work for him because he can't. Snake still believes in it, but it, it very much feels like his. Like he, at the very least, they're equal partners in this venture. It's not Solid Snake's Solid Snake and his friend. Also, it yeah. feels very much like it's Hal's. Like he's the one getting a lot of the intel. He's the one who's sort of determining the path they're taking more than snake is which i think is interesting because that's not how you would assume that dynamic would work for the, these two tropes like that those specific tropes of, of characters yeah um like often the man the man in the chair or the man on the computer is like an alfred type where he's clearly subservient to the character and granted solid snake is our protagonist but there's definitely an evenness to um both what uh hal and dave are doing uh they're you know, like you said, they're just equals. Um, it's not as subservient as others. It hits more of a Punisher yeah. microchip kind of vibe a little bit. I think that's a great analogy. Which is two times now that we've compared Solid Snake to the Punisher, which I did not expect to be doing. Yeah, yeah. I thought it would be controversial just to throw Captain America in there, but actually the Punisher might be someone who... Um, and honestly, the Punisher might even be a better analog to someone like a Big Boss when we get to it, but uh, maybe not. Anyways, we're going to maul this Punisher snake. You, you see, you're, you're seeing all these uh, Outer Heaven logos on cop cars now. It's very problematic. Oh, God. With the blue line on it? Ugh. Um, but anyways, uh, we want to move over to uh, Meryl Silverberg, uh, voiced by uh, Debbie Mae West. And she is uh, the lead woman uh, character of the Metal Gear Solid uh 1998 game. Uh, she is the niece of Snake's uh, commanding officer, Campbell, or we know her as the niece of, of uh, Roy Campbell. And she grew up in a more traditional military household, um, one that venerated Solid Snake, which makes sense since Campbell and Snake were old war buddies. Uh, she idolized the Foxhound unit. She got a tattoo of them, and she joined the Army after high school. Um, and she 
also underwent psycho and gene therapy to, among other things, limit her attraction to the opposite sex, which we'll circle back to a little bit later. Um, the character itself is ripped from one of Kojima's earlier game, Police Knots. There's a redhead named Meryl who looks pretty much exactly the same. Uh, she was a bit inspired by uh, Kitch from Crying Freeman, a manga I'm unfamiliar with, as well as a little bit by Matilda from Leon the Professional, which is a movie I like, but a movie that has, let's say, Luc Besson's awful sexual history <laughs> kind of pasted all over it so it's kind of icky to watch and yeah um, i think they did envision meryl being a little bit younger um than she ended up being in the final product um i think it fits more with the story the military aesthetic and yoji shinkawa has said that uh it looks more normal for an adult woman to hold a desert eagle versus a teen girl just because it's such a giant handgun <laughs> Uh, for lack of a better word. So I'm glad that, you know, they kind of aged her up and did not go for anything closer to that Matilda-Leon uh, dynamic. We don't want that. We have better angles with children coming up in Metal Gear Solid, mostly as it relates to child soldiers. But somehow, all of that doesn't feel as icky as what that could have been, so... Um, and then uh, her arrival to Shadow Moses Island, uh, she was a late replacement for a bunch of soldiers that went missing right before uh, Liquid's insurrection began. So um, that's kind of a summary of her. The themes that go along with her, I think most prominently that we alluded to is obviously uh, gender because she is um, very prominent uh, woman in the middle of a very male driven uh, narrative. Um, but I think this, the story engage, engages with her gender, but and especially with like kind of the male directorial gaze we've mentioned. But anytime like they talk about how, you know, she's a rookie or she doesn't have experience on the battlefield or she might not be up to snuff, it's not really tied to her gender. It's specifically tied to both her lack of experience and her perceived innocence from never having killed someone before, uh, which is, you know, different from basically every other soldier here at Shadow Moses. Yeah. And I would say the, the the most prominent aspect of male gaze for her is is a is a joke scene is is deliberately a joke scene. It's that Snake can tell how she, he knew she, who she was by the way she was walking, and because quote she has a great butt, yeah, just one, one of the most Metal Gear lines I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, and they make it part of the game mechanic where okay, now you have to recognize. Uh, Meryl yeah. by her walk because she's in the standard soldier outfit. So it engages with that. It engages again with that male power fantasy. But um, as the story of Solid Snake and Meryl will diverge after this game, uh, you know, it's kind of something that's denied that um, she's kind of posed as a traditional love interest, as you would expect in any James Bond or action movie. Um, but that's really not her purpose here. And at times, her purpose is to specifically not be that love interest. And I even think as their relationship grows, I don't, it doesn't feel like that James Bond, Bond girl dynamic where Solid Snake is trying to save Meryl so that, you know, he can, you know, have sex with her at the end of the day. Uh, it very much feels like he's... Um, you know, he wants to save her as part of his self-actualization is like, no, I have to do things for other people. You know, the same things we talked about with Hal. Um, it's a real relationship that Meryl and Snake build. It's not just, ooh, you're hot. You're the girl for this mission for me. Um, it's specifically not a Bond girl. It's like one specific Bond girl, and that's Olga Kirilenko and Juan Salas. Yeah. Which is the best thing about that movie. The only thing about the movie that I think is is really remarkable in any way. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I like that aspect. And I think, you know, this will be very important to how 
uh, Snake, uh, or this will be very important to how Metal Gear Solid 4, for better or worse, plays out, um, is kind of an extension of those themes. Um, and we mentioned earlier that she carries a Desert Eagle, which is a very gaudy handgun. It's giant. It almost looks like it's like half of her or her, her entire arm length when she's holding it. Um, and uh, Kojima described it as a Hollywood weapon. It's something you'd expect a Bruce Willis or a Arnold Schwarzenegger to wield. Um, and it's, again, playing into the uh, concept of the aesthetics of war um, and all that stuff. So, um, you know, everything that goes into Meryl um, is very, very specifically picked out uh, to feed the themes of the game. Yes. We should... Uh move on to yeah. the other major female character. Well, one of the one of the other two things. And also, in my opinion, the best character in the game. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Gray Fox, uh, voiced by Greg Eagles. Um, and Gray Fox, or the Cyborg Ninja, it really, you can't divorce him from uh, Naomi Hunter, who is voiced by Jennifer Hale, because um, they both have much of the same backstory. They grew up together. Um, and uh, Gray Fox's real name, Frank Yeager, that last name Yeager is German for Hunter. Um, so Jaeger and Hunt, uh, Frank and Naomi are supposed to be perceived as uh, siblings, uh, even though later on we'll find out the truth. Um, kind of rewinding a bit, uh, Frank Jaeger was a former child soldier. Um, Big Boss would find him, you know, on the battlefield in somewhere Africa. And then uh, during the Rhodesian War, Frank Yeager would go in and he would kill Naomi's parents. And then feeling the guilt of that, um, instead of killing Naomi, he adopted her and brought her along as kind of his little sister. Um, and then Gray Fox was involved. You know, he was first sent in for the Outer Haven uprising that Solid Snake followed him after. And then he was uh, the one who piloted Metal Gear against Solid Snake in the Zanzibar land disturbance during the events of Metal Gear 2. Um, he supposedly died uh, during a fist fight with Solid Snake in a minefield. Um, and he was kind of left for dead at that moment. Um, we would later discover that his body was recovered from that minefield by the Patriots. Patriots. More on them later. And someone named Dr. Clark, uh, which you'll probably want to put a pin on that one, uh, performed gene therapy um, that kind of put uh, Gray Fox into kind of like a permanent stasis uh, where they kind of started treating his wounds and they fitted him with a cybernetic exoskeleton. Um, and then he would kind of go under you know four years of drugging therapy as they kind of pioneered a lot of the genome soldier techniques used on the next generation special forces um, on Gray Fox. He's very, very much like patient zero for a lot of the genetic um, enhancements, the cybernetics that go into the Metal Gear Solid franchise. Um, I think we almost view uh, Gray Fox as kind of like that patient zero in a way. Very much so. To the extent that I think there's a running gag that there's always a, a cyber ninja in the rest of the series. And none of them, with one exception, ever really uh, live up to him. No. They're all pale imitations or phantoms, if you will. Uh, Gray Fox, um, there's a lot of uh, themes that kind of circulate around him. Um, he's, you know, the fallen comrade, the best friend of Solid Snake. Uh, you know, and that, you know, we talk about, you know, soldiers who go to war, um, they talk about the bonds they form with, you know, the people. And when you're in the shit, that totally makes sense that the guy who's watching your back is the most important person in you. So um, I do think in Kojima's, you know, three-dimensional take on the soldier and the soldier experience, that's a core part of it. 
Um, he's also, uh, Frank Yeager was a child soldier, which is a huge theme, especially as we get into Metal Gear Solid 2 and 5. Um, the child soldier and what happens when you live under forever war um, comes to uh, fruition. Uh, you know, and he's also just a meat puppet for experimentation. Um, we talked about how the soldier is viewed as a body um, in the sense of Solid Snake. With Gray Fox, they take it to the next level, like where he has like no autonomy. He's not even given permission to die on his own terms. Um, you know, he's constantly kept alive, drugged, put through therapy, um, everything uh, that they can do against his will to keep him alive. And a lot of what we see of Gray Fox during Metal Gear Solid is him like, oh, I shouldn't be here. Or like, you know, he has the pain of death on him and he's being forced to live with it. And I think getting into what else he's living with, there's a lot of guilt I think Gray Fox has. Um, and a lot of the story of him in Metal Gear Solid is about redemption and sacrifice. And I think he really delivers um, kind of like the key punch or like the key character moment of this game uh, when, you know, Metal Gear Rex has him underfoot, is about to squash him. And then he's the one who tells Snake, we're not tools of the government or anyone else. Fighting was the only thing, the only thing I was good at. But at least I always fought for what I believed in. And this is kind of, I like Snake has already kind of begun his self-actualization, but I think seeing Fox come back from all that, you know, everything that happened to him, um, all that guilt he had with, you know, killing Naomi's parents um, and all the pain of having, you know, died, like seeing Gray Fox come back from all that uh, to face down Metal Gear Rex with his katana and his Mega Man arm. Um, I think that's a very big part of uh, Solid Snake self-actualization, because as we said, he was coming into the Shadow Moses incident, also kind of a broken man. Um, and he he was able to overcome kind of the same issues that Gray Fox was having. Very much so. Um, weird thing is, it's kind of hard to talk about Naomi because she's she kind of just exists to get revenge for Gray Fox. And like, her exact motivations are never really, and that's a running theme with her, it's like, it's kind of hard to say what, who she is as a character because she's just kind of, she's the, she's a plot, she's the most plot device character, I think, in the series. Yes, where she just kind of exists to do, to have revelations happen around her. It's a shame because you know, Jennifer Hale she gives a good performance, but Naomi I think is one of the only, and I don't think it has anything to do with her gender. I don't think she's used like in a derogatory way as a woman, but I think she's just she just sort of is a plot device character more than anything else. It's just kind of hard to talk about her because she doesn't really have a character arc of any kind no uh she definitely um is definitely one of the she exists there to move the story forward for a lot but i do enjoy that uh it does feel like she kind of does go through a little bit of a catharsis because she definitely comes into the shadow moses incident wanting to kill snake and i think uh kind of what he learns from gray fox and he doesn't tell her the truth about what happened uh you know he kind of just says you know Gray Fox thought of you as a sister and he'll always remember you instead of saying, yeah. oh, Gray Fox said he killed your mom and dad, so fuck him. Uh, that's not what's happening here. And she's the one who's kind of telling Snake to go on and live at the end. So I think Naomi's legacy will be more more laid out in Metal Gear Solid 4. And again, I think, again, she's a very much a plot device or a MacGuffin uh, in that game as well. Because, uh, you know, you kind of have to get her and be through her. You can get certain things that help you, you know, end the Patriots reign. We'll, we'll save all that for later. But I, I was going to say personally that I honestly, I like 
Natasha and specifically Mei Ling much more than her as far as like people as far as like women that Snake calls on the codec to get advice from. I think Naomi ends up just kind of being cold is not the word I'm looking for, but she's just sort of it work. It makes sense to me because you know she's she actively hates Snake at the start of the mission, but it's she's not the she's not a fun character to me. Yeah, I think so. And I did want to point out that Naomi or Jennifer Hale in the initial Metal Gear Solid 1998 had a British accent that would be uh, dropped uh, for Metal Gear Solid: The Twin Snakes, which is a remake of this game, as well as Metal Gear Solid Four. Um, I think some of that is um, just bad. You know some interesting choices with the localization, but I think what they were going for, uh, because they gave Mei Ling a very stereotypical Chinese accent, even though she is from Berkeley. Um, You have Nastasha Romanenko, who is Russian. Um, I think they were trying to get the idea that this was a very uh, international or multinational team behind a snake, or at least a diverse one. I think they're all supposed to be, you know, roughly American or Western, but um, it gives the sense that, you know, it's a more diverse team behind him, I think was kind of the idea behind. That Foxhound, this version is specifically not just a, a U.S. military operation. Yeah. Yes. And I, I like, I do like the, I do like the, her British accent. I like that because Jennifer Hill's accent is good enough, but also if you know what she sounds like, it sounds fake. It sounds like she's putting it on, which I think actually works for that character who's, you know, hiding her real motivations for 90% of the game. Yeah. And then uh, last thing, like I said, I want to go into like just real quickly the arenas that uh, you fight these villains in. And you fight uh, Gray Fox in the same place you meet Otacon. It's a computer lab. Um, but this specifically is, a, you know, a computer lab is where man meets computer. And I think that plays with a lot of the same th- themes of, uh, you know, Gray Fox being half man, half robot. Um, you know, the... Sh- the shell of a robot around the remnants of a man, uh, kind of the fusion of the two. So um, again, I think where Kojima has his boss fights are just as important to as when and with whom. Um, So that'll be something we track going forward. And then uh, before we finish up for today's episode, we do kind of want to go over the rest of Solid Snake support staff since we already highlighted the main level protagonists and Gray Fox, I'd say protagonist over antihero, but it's kind of in that realm. Um, well, let's start with uh, Snake's commanding officer, Roy Campbell. Uh, you want to hit me with some thoughts on uh, good old boy Roy there? Paul Eiding is great. I mean, he was in StarCraft. He was great in StarCraft. Of just like guy who his voice, his voice just has an authority behind it that you don't all that it's hard to manufacture. I think. Yeah, he's he's in portable ops, and I, that's the, like the only thing that's interesting about that game to me. But I've never played it, so I can't really talk about it. Yeah, so I haven't played portable ops, but uh, which is. It's not really considered canon, but Kojima has occasionally cherry-picked like a plot point or two from there to, you know, loop into his canon. Um, it is believed that uh I think Roy Campbell and Big Boss, Naked Snake, were prisoners together and they escaped together. Um, I don't remember if this was like Hanoi or somewhere in, you know, Latin America or somewhere else. Um, but this is kind of where uh Roy Campbell first met like let's say the snake lineage so to speak um and then he would kind of be a contemporary to big boss whereas once we get to the solid snake era um he is definitely kind of the grizzled commanding officer the man who no longer goes out in the field um he has a very distinct voice um and so much so that uh 
kind of this por- portrayal by uh, Paul Edding, did you say is the actor's name? I think it's Eiding, yeah. Paul Eiding. It's so like iconic and very specific that it becomes a key por- part of the themes of Metal Gear Solid 2 is the fact that the player very much knows the commander's voice and mannerisms and how they speak to Snake. So... Um, I really like him. I like, um, he's, you know, he's definitely a background character who's mostly there in kind of a very similar to an M role, um, even though he doesn't have all the answers, like, let's say, an M would in a James Bond movie. Um, but I, I enjoy his presence, and I kind of like that uh, tie-in between Big Boss and Solid Snake, that he kind of spans both of them. There's not a whole lot else, there's not a whole else to talk about with him, except for I do think one of the reasons that Snake really becomes attached to Meryl is because she's important to Campbell and he res- Campbell's maybe the only person who he res- actually respects in the and like the who could order him with the, or you know anyone in the hierarchy of the military that he actually respects and it's also how he's how they get him into Shadow Moses in the first place it's like Campbell has to be the guy who pulled him out of retirement no one else would have been able to yeah um so I think uh in terms of military people in Solid Snake's life, I think this is the only one he really truly trusts and considers a friend, um, considering that he thinks that Gray Fox is, you know, dead. Uh, also on uh, Solid Snake's uh, support staff, who who do I want to pick here? I'm going to pick an interesting one. Master Benedict Miller. How many names does he end up getting? Because he's McDonald at one point too, right? Yeah. Oh, I think McDonald's is in here too. So Master McDonald Miller, um, as he's introduced, is... One of Solid Snake's, uh, he was one of his trainers uh, when he first joined Foxhound. He's a survival expert. Yes. Um, And I think we're going to talk about Master Miller so much when we get to the Big Boss era. Um, But for this game, he's, let's just say he looks like a blonde guy with sunglasses. (laughs) But um, he's definitely the person you're supposed to call if you have questions on like equipment, on weapons. And this is a key part of all Metal Gear Solid games going forward is that you'll have contacts specifically for, oh, how do I use this weapon or how is this weapon effective or what does this item in my inventory do? Um, Usually you have like an item specialist or a survival specialist, someone to help you, you know, help the player understand how to use all the items you uncover. And that's kind of his purpose in terms of a game game design aspect. Um, But uh, a lot of what we learn about Naomi, we actually start learning from Master Miller or this game's Master Miller um, kind of near the end of the second act. But um, I guess we we should just say it, right? Yeah, we're not spoilers. We're spoilers spoilers. extended. Master Miller uh, is actually Liquid Snake. Uh, Liquid Snake had Master Miller killed in 2005, probably right before the Shadow Moses incident, uh, so that Liquid over the codec could pose as uh, Kazuhiro, Master, Benedict, McDonald, Miller, something. And Master Miller, the actual one, will be one that we meet, and we have a lot of time with, and we'll talk about him then. Uh, But there is a big ruse within this game where Master Miller reveals himself to be Liquid Snake. And that, again, goes back to some of the things we talked about, how um, in the previous episode, not only does, you know, the State Department and uh, Foxhound have their own, you know, machinations on Snake, um, similarly... Uh, you know, Liquid Liquid Snake is, you know, trying to use Solid Snake as a pawn in his own right. And Master Miller is kind of how he does that. And again, that kind of challenges the power fantasy here that, oh, actually, this whole time you were taking your cues from the, you know, one of the big bads of the game. Um, and you thought he was your friend. So 
Um, that's Master Miller. Um, let's move on to Mei Ling, who is um, basically your data analyst for this mission. She saves your game. Yes, uh, which I also always like is that uh, the saves in Metal Gear Solid is always diegetic or it's always viewed as recording mission data. Yeah. Um, it's not like um, viewed as something that exists outside of the context of the game. Uh, she's a Berkeley grad. She's Californian. Um, she's given this kind of very racisty stereotypical accent in this game that gets ironed out for future releases and future installments of the series. Um, again, I think they were going for that international team behind snake, but um, this is probably the one where it kind of really sticks out as, Ooh, I wish they didn't do that. Yeah. Mainly I, I like, because I like she's, she kind of starts the, the trend of, of snake of a snake, always having someone who quotes proverbs and like weird, knowledge to him that he's always confused by. <laughs> um, yeah. And of course, of course, Mei Ling and Naomi and Nastasha, uh, maybe less Nastasha. They all get, they all get the, uh, the kind of hilarious, not subtle at all snake flirting, like just on like absolute, just like full blast, full auto flirting. He does all the time. Yeah. Just, it's one of his traits and it's funny because it, it's not that it doesn't work, but it's just like, <laughs> Snake is too horny. <laughs> yeah. Snake, please. He's too horny on main. He's going crazy all the time. And it's like, there's something funny about him just openly flirting with three different people who can all hear him at the same time. Yeah. As, I think it's fun in a lot of ways. because And Meryl at the same time. Yeah. So four. It's like all the women kind of go along with this flirting and they're amused by it, but don't seem to be like, you know, swooned by it or like, oh, this means me and Silent Snake, huh? Um, it, it's very playful. And at times it feels like Silent Snake. It's like, it's almost like he knows, oh, somewhere in the script right now, they says I should throw out a one-liner or a pickup line. So um, it's not self-referential, but I think it's very much highlighting um, sometimes how goofy some of the flirty lines are, especially in like a James Bond movie where, where you get some real clunkers. I think that's where that comes from specifically. Well, what's interesting, unlike unlike James Bond, he does not flirt with, with Sniper Wolf at all. Yeah. I can never call. Which is that's sort of the James Bond thing is he, you know, James Bond is to the extent that it seems like some of the James like more more in Pierce Brosnan, I'm thinking of specifically, feel like they have a mental disorder. Like they're they're sick. <laughs> like please stop, sir. Yeah, it's like they have this woman is shooting you right now. She just shot you with a gun. You don't need to be like, oh having fun, are we? No more foreplay. <laughs> Just thinking of, I mean, listen, I understand it. Fapke Janssen in the nineties, but like she's shooting at you with a rocket launcher. Please like, please move. <laughs> please Take cover. <laughs> you're going, you're going to die. She always did like a tight squeeze. Uh, there's just so many, so many, so many groaners in the Pierce Brosnan era. I love it so much. They're great. But, uh, so, and then the last person I think we should talk about for Solid Snake support staff is Nastasha Romanenko, um, who I guess I kind of messed up when I said Kaz was your, or Master Miller was your equipment guy. I'd say uh, Nastasha specifically, especially when it comes to guns and military equipment, um, is kind of your. That's her designation, yeah. Kaz is not officially part of the mission. That's I right. I think. And uh, Nastasha also is someone who will catch the player up on the history of Metal Gear a little bit because um, when uh, the DARPA chief Donald Anderson dies of his heart attack, quote unquote, um, you know, 
kind of you actually have a conversation with Nastasha not shortly thereafter, um, where they talk about the history of Metal Gear as like, you know, a nuclear tank, not the games, uh, coming into uh, the events of the Shadow Moses incident. Um, she says everything she knows, but then she's like, you're the real expert, aren't you, Solid Snake? Um, so, and, you know, I don't know how deliberate this is, but I can't help but notice the similarity between Nastasha Romanenko and Natasha Romanoff, the, you know, Black Widow from the Avengers movies. Um, they're both former Russian agents. Um, I definitely think there's some, you know, maybe homage there. I don't think it's meant to be like, oh, she's basically the same as the Black Widow, but, um, I definitely think there's a very similar strain running between them. Um, especially even if you consider the fact that we've talked about the snake Captain America analogs, uh, prior. Uh, in this episode. Well, it's important to say that that wouldn't be from, they wouldn't be homaging the Avengers movies that, that wouldn't exist for 14 more years. Yeah. But the the, the famous, the, the like Captain America and Black Widow have a pretty, pretty entwined relationship in the comics also. So Yeah, they, they're kind of two Marvel heroes that live in the same aesthetic or like, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, because there's like... They're there's, familiar with one another. Yeah, there's street-level street heroes, like, you know, Daredevil and Spider-Man. There's, like, your cosmic-level heroes. But there's definitely, like, the national security-level heroes where you do a lot of your spy storytelling or, um, you know, Punisher, Black... Or, or not Punisher, but Cap and Black Widow are definitely two characters. No, Punisher's involved in that sometimes. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Punisher's... Hawkeye's in there occasionally. Yeah. Although not as much as the movies would have you believe. No, no, not at all. Though, um, I definitely, I have a long series of takes on how uh, Captain America the Winter Soldier um, takes a lot from Metal Gear Solid, the series. Um, one of the, <laughs> one of the uh, really minor throwaway points that I'll throw out right here is the fact that the end of Winter Soldier, spoilers for that seven-year-old movie, is Natasha Romanoff leaking all of S.H.I.E.L.D. secrets to, um, onto Twitter, um, and that kind of exposes everything. Uh, in the world of Metal Gear Solid, after the events of Shadow Moses, Nat- Natasha Romanenko will be the one that publishes a tell-all book um, that kind of informs the public about everything that's been up to with um, they don't know the Patriots yet, but that Metal Gears are being built and they're going backwards on anti-nuclear treaties and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's another way in which I found a parallel between those two characters. But I will save my big overarching take on that for some maybe never recorded to be podcast. <laughs> so I think that should be good on covering the protagonist and the main support staff for uh, Solid Snake and the events of the Shadow Moses incident. Next time, we will dive uh, headfirst into Foxhound, the unit commanded by Liquid Snake and all the wonderful bosses that come along with him. Snake! What was she fighting for? What am I fighting for? What are you fighting for? If we make it through this, I'll tell you. Okay, I'll be searching too. That's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontieres at gmail.com, and you can find us at podsansfront on twitter.com and instagram.com, where I'm going to post a bunch of stupid stuff. <laughs> um, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm 
Ben and will continue to be Brian, also known as Cosmos. We're all born with an expiration date. No one lasts forever. Uh, we are officially now live on Apple, Google, Amazon, and Spotify. Um, and we're hosted on Podbean, of course. Um, I want to throw a quick shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, uh, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter, who makes me and Brian sound lovely. Uh, please remember to like, review, subscribe. That's a great way for getting our podcast out there um, and get more ears so we can keep bringing you some great, fantastic content like we always do. Uh, so until next time, remember, the best is yet to come.